Preface of The Dawn and the Day This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Dawn and the Day by Henry Thayer Niles Preface when Humboldt first ascended the Andes and saw the trees, shrubs, and flora he had long before studied on the Alps, he had only to look at his barometer, or at the sea of mountains and hills below, the rocks and soil around and the sun above, to understand this seeming marvel of creation, while those who knew less of the laws of order and universal harmony might be lost in conjectures about pollen floating in the upper air or seeds carried by birds across seas. Forgetting that preservation is perpetual creation, and that it takes no more power to clothe a mountain just risen from the sea in appropriate verdure than to renew the beauty and the bloom of spring. Max Müller, who looks through antiquity with the same clear vision with which Humboldt examined the physical world when he found the most ancient Hindus bowing in worship before Dios Pitar, the exact equivalent of the Zeus Pater of the Greeks and the Jupiter of the Romans, and of Our Father who art in the heavens, in our own divinely taught prayer, instead of indulging in wild speculations about the chance belief of some ancient chief or patriarch transmitted across continents and seas, and even across the great gulf that has always divided the Aryan from the Semitic civilization, and preserved through ages of darkness and unbelief, saw in it the common yearning of the human soul to find rest on a loving father's almighty arm. Yet when our oriental missionaries and scholars found such fundamental truths of their own religion as the common brotherhood of man, and that love is the vital force of all religion, which consists not in blood oblations or in forms and creeds, but in shunning evil and doing good, and that we must overcome evil by good and hatred by love, and that there is a spiritual world and life after death embodied in the teachings of Buddha. Instead of finding in this great fact new proof of the common father's love for all his children, they immediately began to indulge in conjectures as to how these truths might have been derived from the early Christians who visited the East while those who are disposed to reject the claims of Christianity have exhausted research and conjecture to find something looking as if Christianity itself might have been derived from the Buddhist missionaries to Palestine and Egypt, both overlooking the remarkable fact that it is only in fundamental truths that the two religions agree, while in the dogmas, legends, creeds, and speculations which form the wall of separation between them they are as wide asunder as the poles. How comes it on the one theory that the Nestorians, whose peculiar creed had already separated them from the balance of the Christian church, taught their Buddhist disciples no part of that creed to which they have adhered with such tenacity through the ages? And on the other theory, how comes it, if the divine master was, as some modern writers claim, an Essene, that is, a Buddhist monk, that there is not in all his teachings a trace of the speculations, 
and legends which had already buried the fundamental truths of Buddhism almost out of sight. How sad to hear a distinguished Christian scholar like Sir Monier Williams cautioning his readers against giving a Christian meaning to the Christian expressions he constantly met with in Buddhism, and yet informing them that a learned and distinguished Japanese gentleman told him it was a source of great delight to him to find so many of his most cherished religious beliefs in the New Testament, and to see an earnest Christian missionary like good Father Hook, when, in the busy city of Lhasa, on the approach of evening, at the sound of a bell, the whole population sunk on their knees in a concert of prayer, only finding in it an attempt of Satan to counterfeit Christian worship, and on the other hand to see ancient and modern learning ransacked to prove that the brightest and clearest light that ever burst upon a sinful and benighted world was but the reflected rays of another faith. And yet this same Sir Monier Williams says, We shall not be far wrong in attempting an outline of the Buddha's life if we begin by assuming that intense individuality, fervid earnestness, and severe simplicity, combined with singular beauty of countenance, calm dignity of bearing, and almost superhuman persuasiveness of speech, were conspicuous in the great teacher. To believe that such a character was the product of a false religion, or that he was given over to believe a lie, savors too much of that worst agnosticism which would, in effect, deny the universality of God's love, and would limit his care to some favored locality or age or race. How much more in harmony with the broad philosophy of such men as Humboldt and Mueller, and with the character of a loving father, to believe that at all times and in all countries he has been watching over all his children, and giving them all the light they were capable of receiving. This narrow vein is especially out of place in treating of Buddhism and Christianity, as Buddha himself predicted that his dharma would last but five hundred years, when he would be succeeded by Maitreya, that is, love incarnate, on which account the whole Buddhist world was on tiptoe of expectation at the time of the coming of our Lord, so that the wise men of the East were not only following their guiding star, but the prediction of their own great prophet in seeking Bethlehem. Had the Christian missionaries to the East left behind them their creeds, which have only served to divide Christians into hostile sects, and sometimes into hostile camps, and which, so far as I can see, after years of patient study, have no necessary connection with the simple, living truths taught by our Savior, and had taken only their New Testaments and their earnest desire to do good, the history of missions would have been widely different. How of the earth earthy seemed the walls that divided the delegates to the world's great congress of religions recently held in Chicago, and how altogether divine the love which, like an endless golden chain, joined all in one. Whatever others may think, it is my firm belief that Buddhism and Christianity, which we cannot doubt have influenced for good such vast masses the human family, both descended from heaven clothed in robes of celestial purity, which have become sadly stained by their contact with the selfishness of a sinful world, except for which belief the following pages would never have been written, which are now sent forth in the hope that they may do something to enable Buddhists and Christians
to see eye to eye, and something to promote peace and goodwill among men. While following my own conceptions, and even fancies in many things, I believe the leading characters and incidents to be historical, and I have given nothing as the teaching of the great master which was not, to my mind, clearly authenticated. To those who have read so much about agnostic Buddhism, and about nirvana meaning annihilation, it may seem bold in me to present Buddha as an undoubting believer in the fundamental truths of all religion, and as not only a believer in a spiritual world, but an actual visitor to its sad and blissful scenes. But the only agnosticism I have been able to trace to Buddha was a want of faith in the many ways invented through the ages to escape the consequences of sin and to avoid the necessity of personal purification. And the only annihilation he taught and yearned for was the annihilation of self in the highest Christian sense, and escape from that body of death from which the Apostle Paul so earnestly sought deliverance. Doubtless agnosticism and almost every form of belief and unbelief subsequently sprang up among the intensely accurate and speculative peoples of the East, known under the general name of Buddhists, as they did among the less acute and speculative people of the West, known as Christians. But the one is no more primitive Buddhism than the other is primitive Christianity. While there are innumerable poetic legends, of which Spence Hardy's Manual of Buddhism is a great storehouse, and many of which are given by Arnold in his beautiful poem, strewn thick along the track of Buddhist literature, constantly tempting one to leave the straight path of the development of a great religion, I have carefully avoided what did not commend itself to my mind as either historical or spiritual truth. It was my original design to follow the wonderful career of Buddha until his long life closed with visions of the golden city, much as described in Revelation, and then to follow that most wonderful career of Buddhist missions, not only through India and Ceylon, but to Palestine, Greece, and Egypt, and over the tablelands of Asia, and through the Chinese Empire to Japan, and thence by the Black Stream to Mexico and Central America, and then to follow the wise men of the East, until the light of the world dawned on them on the plains of Bethlehem, a task but half accomplished, which I shall yet complete if life and strength are spared. A valued literary friend suggests that the social life described in the following pages is too much like ours, but why should their daily life and social customs be greatly different from ours? The Aryan migrations to India and to Europe were in large masses, of course, taking their social customs, or, as the Romans would say, their household gods with them. What wonder, then, that the home, as Tacitus describes it in the wilds of Germany, was substantially what Müller finds from the very structure of the Sanskrit and European languages, it must have been in Bactria, the common cradle of the Aryan race. There can scarcely be a doubt that 2,500 years ago the daily life and social customs in the north of India, which had been under undisputed Aryan control long enough for the Sanskrit language to spring up, come to perfection and finally become obsolete, were more like ours than like those of modern India after the many, and especially the Mohammedan, conquests and after centuries of oppression and alien rule. 
if a thousand english-speaking aryans should now be placed on some distant island how much would their social customs and even amusements differ from ours in a hundred years only so far as changed climate and surroundings compelled i give as an introduction an outline of the golden silver brazen and iron ages as described by the ancient poets and believed in by all antiquity as it was in the very depths of the darkness of the iron age that our great light appeared in northern india the very denseness of the darkness of the age in which he came makes the clearness of the light more wonderful and accounts for the joy with which it was received and the rapidity with which it spread not to enter into the niceties of chronological questions the mission of buddha may be roughly said to have commenced about five hundred years before the commencement of our era and with incessant labors and long and repeated journeys have lasted forty-five years when at about the age of eighty he died or as the buddhists more truthfully and more beautifully say entered nirvana henry t niles toledo january first eighteen ninety four since this work was in the hands of the printer i have read the recent work of bishop copleston of colombo ceylon and it was a source of no small gratification to find him in all material points agreeing with the result of my somewhat extensive investigations as given within for in ceylon if anywhere we would expect accuracy here the great buddhist development first comes in contact with authentic history during the third century b c in the reign of the great asoka the discovery of whose rock inscriptions shed such a flood of light on primitive buddhism while it still retained enough of its primitive power as we learn from those inscriptions themselves to turn that monarch from a course of cruel tyranny and as we learn from the history of ceylon to induce his son and daughter to abandon royalty and become the first missionaries to that beautiful island h t m end of preface recording by scott robbins